Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Brad Boatwright, who is a mastering engineer as well as a musician working out of his studio in Portland, Oregon called Audio Siege. And he's worked with all kinds of sick clients such as Zach Sabbath, Skeleton Witch, Obituary, Sleep, Nails, Defeater, and many others. I present you Brad Boatwright. Brad Boatwright, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. So I kind of just want to jump right in the deep end. In the pre-interview, you said you deal with burnout a lot, that it's kind of wired into who you are. And I've dealt with it a lot too. So I'm curious, what do you do to deal with that? Man, honestly, the best thing I can ever do for dealing with that is just take a step back. I call it woodshedding because, you know, you, you go out to the woodshed and you you work on your chops, <laughs> sometimes literally, you know, like, and this, I mean, this goes back to who I was as a kid, you know, when I was playing music as a, as a teenager and as an adult, it goes back to, to touring all the time for a few, you know, for, for several years. And I think the root of it, having kind of analyzed the, the psychology behind it on my own for many years is, is that, I put a lot of energy into what I do, no matter what it is. If it's something I care about, if it's something I'm passionate about, I put every bit of my heart in there, you know, and it sometimes minimizes the room for other things. It minimizes the room for self-care. It minimizes the room for care about people around me, friends, family, health, everything. You only have 100% of your energy to be able to devote to life, right? So... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like a pie chart, you know, and like if it's 5150, you know, like if there's 51% and 50%, you're like you're 1% over what you can do, right? Like so, yeah, the burnout part is just it's not like the kind of burnout where you get sick of doing something and you just don't, don't want to do it anymore. It's where you you at least for me, it's where I have to be aware 
of if I'm starting to kind of go through motions and if I'm starting to not put my passion and my full energy into something, that's when I need to take a step back and, you know, think about things, do maybe do something differently, try something, try a new piece of gear, whatever, you know, like there's so many things that I can do to kind of trigger that excitement to come back. But usually it's just taking some time off, you know, like I said, woodshedding and I always come back better. I'm a big fan of chess. I'm a big chess player. And there are times where I take, you know, months off from chess just completely randomly and I'll come back and all of a sudden I'm, I'm like seeing moves that I wouldn't have seen before just from having the, the, the break and the refreshing time off. I've noticed that burnout, if you're aware of it creeping up and you deal with it properly, it won't get to the point where you don't want to do something anymore. Now, I want to distinguish between something running its course, say that you used to play in a band, um, something running its course, like for me, playing guitar and playing in a band ran its course. It wasn't burnout. It, that was, I was done with it. But burnout for me is something that uh, I've gotten better with being aware of it. The way that I started to first really notice it creeping is when I stopped giving a shit about what I was working on. Like in the moment, I don't mean overall, like in a session or something, I just noticed myself, uh, my standards would start to drop. Not intentionally, they just would. I would just let stuff go that I wouldn't let go earlier that day. And I was just going through motions, kind of like you said, and things were starting to just take longer uh, than they should have. Like, so the speed of everything, the speed of the workflow starts to grind down slowly. And I think quality control goes out the window little by little though, not all at once, but little by little, you're just, your defenses go down because you're starting to burn out. I think your ability to stay on top of something like creatively and energetically, that's a finite resource and you have to renew it. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's critical to be aware of that too, because we're not just plating somebody's food that they're going to eat and digest and, and, and get rid of, right? Like no matter like how many stars a restaurant has or something, we're dealing with things that people are going to keep for their entire life, things that they've put their energy into, their recorded music, music that they've sweat over, like that they've written, recorded their own passions. And nobody deserves to have an apathetic or indifferent approach towards the work being done on their own record, right? I, I wouldn't appreciate it as a musician. And that's why like, nope. being aware of it creeping up is critical because I don't want to get to that point where somebody gives me, you know, trusts me and trusts me with their music, their passion, and I'm not giving a shit about it. I, I can't imagine a world in which that's a reality. And I'll be upfront with people if I need to say, hey, look, I need a couple of days off or something. It'll be better. You know, um, if you got a deadline, I'll get my ass in gear. But like, it's critical because like I said, it's not, it's not a plate of food. You know, like this is something that lasts a lifetime. You get one shot at it. You know, what's interesting about admitting that you probably need a moment off is that that's actually harder to do than people might realize because at least a lot of the people I work with have worked with, musicians I've recorded, they're all super hard workers and they tend to have a ridiculous work ethic. I mean, that's pretty much why they've gotten to where they've gotten. And they are real hard on themselves about uh, about working hard. And so 
I don't want to disappoint them and they don't want to disappoint themselves. It's hard for them to say, I'm too tired. Let's continue tomorrow. I'll give you better takes tomorrow. And it's hard to say, I think you've played your best for today. All our good shit is behind us. Let's stop, reconvene tomorrow, and it'll be better. We'll get it done in a third the time that it would that we would tonight. And not just that, it'll be better. For some reason, as logical as that is, it's actually hard to say sometimes, I think. You have to, or at least I did, had to desensitize myself from the discomfort of bringing that up. Now I'm comfortable with it, but uh, it wasn't easy for some reason just because there's so much stigma attached with uh, taking time off or slowing down. Yeah. And like, it's definitely true with like the tracking stage. Like, you know, I kind of, there's a lot of like, especially these days, there's a lot of like parallels with like video games, you know, like, oh, I can beat this level if I just keep trying, if I can just keep, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I can get this take if I just keep trying and just keep, yeah. Sometimes you just, man, just go to sleep, you know, go to bed, wake up and do it again, get some rest. There's a parallel between the effort involved with beating the video game level. But the big difference is you can beat a video game level winging it. Like, you can get lucky, you can happen to have just the right timing for the right move at the right time, not because you're on your shit, but you tried it eight million times and it just so happened to work the eight million and one time. But with tracking, um, you really shouldn't be winging things. You shouldn't be just trying to beat a level and just get by. You should be trying to dominate your parts, in my opinion. I would actually slightly disagree with that, though, because there is... I like to leave some room as a musician. I like to leave some room for for the random occurrences that we call chance and and happy accidents. You know. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think that that's um, in opposition to what I said. I, I agree with you about that. That's really, really important. And I just mean if you're sitting there trying to get a part and it's been five hours and you're still on the same part and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. You're just trying to beat the level, basically. Like you will not stop. Chances are that you might get it good enough eventually or something that can be pieced together to be acceptable eventually. Yeah. But that's not the same as hitting it when you're fresh. Yeah. And we're talking like kind of structure, like, you know, like structured parts versus, I guess, like more improvisational parts. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, man, and like, you know, being on the other side of the glass too, like some of the best engineers I've ever seen are the ones who are absolutely like brutally honest with people, you know, like, like, Hey, you're out of tune or you could do a lot better than that. Or you need to take some time off. Let's do something else. And I've seen other engineers who are like, that was fine. And it shouldn't have been, you know, man, there's been times where I've been the musician and I've been recorded by somebody where they've said, that's fine. And I've been like, no, it wasn't. What are you talking about? That was not fine. But they held their ground basically. But then I remember many years later, me being in that position saying, that's fine. And a musician disagreeing with me and me thinking they're nuts. But it's weird because I don't think that either side is always right. Sometimes the oh, musician is right that yeah. they're not done, but sometimes the engineer does know better. It's weird. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's art. There's no, there's no set of rules It's and it's all holistic, right? Like, man, I, I've recently been like getting into listening to, um, lots of the isolated guitar tracks that you can find on YouTube. And the other day I was listening to Robin Crosby's guitar track from Round and Round by Rat. And either cool. his guitar is intonated poorly or slightly out of tune, but it is, 
<laughs> but the song mixed, everything sounds perfect. It's perfect, right? And you listen to the one track and it sounds so human. And it's the kind of thing that like, maybe some engineers would say, hey, like, let's get your guitar intonated. Or like, you might want to check your tuning or something, but they let it go. Combine with everything, you get a little bit of a chorus effect on the guitars. Everything sounds full. So yeah, it's like, there's no set of rules here. There's no, it's a true sorcery, I guess. It's because you, you've you got to know when to make a decision and that goes one way and follows a set of rules and when to go with your gut. And <laughs> that's what, I think that's what makes, that's what, what makes people really great engineers and not just in, in recording, but in, in anything, you know, knowing when to, when to let things go and knowing when things really need to be focused on. That's the part uh, that can't be taught, in my opinion. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah, that's, uh, and I try to tell URM students that, that they need to get into the field and do this stuff for real because that's the only way they're going to develop those instincts. There's no, no Nail the Mix episode or URM course is going to teach them that. That's a completely internal thing that everyone has to figure out for themselves. And the thing is, some people are going to get it and some won't. And there's no way to know who it's going to be. Like, because it, it, it comes down to instincts, I think, like developing your instincts and your tastes and your judgment. And that's such a hard thing to grasp. And it's such a personal thing. And it comes with experience and observation. Yeah. You know, and it, there's so much focus on left brain and right brain. I like to think of, I, I, God, I, I feel like it was like Dave Pensato on a, on a podcast I heard like years, years ago. Like, I like to think of, of, instinct as being left hand and right hand with a guitar, right? Like if you're a right-handed guitar player, your left hand is kind of the technical, the technical part of things, right? And your right hand is the instinct and the, and the, the, the sloppiness or the tightness, whatever you want to call it, right? Like your left hand frets, you know, has the notes, bends the notes, whatever. Your right hand does what it wants and they work together. And that's a, that's a feel thing. Yeah, it just can't be taught. It's like when when Luke takes off the the targeting computer and just has to close his eyes, you know, like it comes with experience or natural talent and anybody can get there. But really, like those are the two paths you got to have experience or, or natural talent. Now, the skills help, of course, but especially if you have the experience and the talent. Yeah. You throw skills into that mix, and uh, that's when you start to get some serious greatness, I think. Exactly. It's interesting, though, because I think we've all seen people who skew one way or the other, though, who uh, you know maybe have a lot of skills but not as much talent, but they're very, very cool, and they're so professional and so skilled that they tend to do, okay, maybe they won't be like an Andy Wallace or something, but they tend to do really well for themselves. And then you also get people who might not be the most technically skilled, but are super talented, also cool and professional, and they will do all right too. I don't think that if you're one way or the other, that it's definitely a determining factor in how well you'll do. But I definitely think that in order to be like, great, 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 you kind of need all the above. I mean, what matters is the results, right? Yep. And I also think that skewing towards technical prowess or skewing towards instinct and playing by sense of smell, I think those two paths 
they attract different clientele or different like people with different visions for what they want on their record. Some people might want to go record and have more of a kind of spur of the moment, catch, you know, just catch the moment and, and, and go with it. Some people might have everything mapped out, BPMs on, on a chart, everything, and they want somebody technical. And a lot, I mean, it, it, it does bleed through to the record, you know? And, and so, yeah, it, there's just, you know, Macs and PCs, whatever. It's like, there's two different ways of doing things. Some people have a good balance of the two. Some people are, are extremely one way or the other. I don't know what the hell I am, but you're right. The instinct can't be taught and the skills have to be learned. Everybody creates their own way of working and their own workflow. Well, I mean, mastering involves a lot of technique, I think. It's a very technical art. But it's also very instinctive, too. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about because um, you were saying that uh, you think there's a lot of creative elements in mastering that mostly go unnoticed. I wanted to talk about what that is because I think a lot of people don't, well, like you said, they go unnoticed. A lot of people don't think about mastering and creativity even though that's weird to me because mastering can take a song or a record in any crazy or amazing direction, there's got to be some creativity uh, right there. Not, I mean, there's a big difference between taking something that sounds amazing and just making it a little bit louder and then completely transforming something. But either way, whether it's heavy-handed or not, it's still a decision there's still judgment involved in that and you're still creating an outcome. Yeah. And let's define kind of where we're going with the creative part of when I, when I start talking about creativity and mastering and mixing, I think creative moves by a mix engineer oftentimes include, you know, adding a delay to a vocal part or, you know, panning a guitar a certain way and adding reverb to the other channel or or, just all these things, right? Like, um, tracking a, a kick drum in a, in a, in a, or a, a drum set in a hallway, whatever. Like those are kind of creative moves. In mastering, the creative moves that I make in mastering are never moves that are really considered sonically textured. To clarify, like what I meant by the the creative moves in mastering, it it often has something more to do with timing, with sequencing a record, with an album flow, with I'll work. 15, 20, 30 minutes sometimes on just getting a fade proper on a song so that it's timed. I'll sit here with my eyes closed counting beats per minute, you know, to make sure the gaps are correct. Making an album flow by spacing the songs out or reordering, suggest, sometimes I'll even suggest to people like, look, I think that your album would actually work better as a listener if this song is here. So primarily, I would say it's it's sequencing moves that would be made so that a listener doesn't get bored. You know, nobody wants to put on a record and then have to wait eight seconds between songs. If you listen to the the first three Danzig <laughs> albums, man, those things are sequenced so fucking well. Or like, <laughs> it was a running joke for a little while that like Slayer, the, the Slayer, like the feedback where it's like, you know, where it just stops and, and then comes into the next song. Like that's like that gets referenced. It was a running joke for a while that that got referenced like at least once a month. So moves like that. And and there's there are often moves that the bands don't consider. You know, they send me something. It's just got like 30 seconds of feedback at the end. I'm like, OK, cool. They're, they definitely don't want to keep that there. What do I do with this? And the spacing between songs is kind of my creative palette. 
you know, whether it's dead silence that I trim to a certain length or if it's noises that I combine to make things flow better. I mean, it's sequencing is really important, man. It's like setting a batting lineup, you know, like come out like your first four guys, like, you know, those are kind of your most important dudes on the, in the batting lineup. And, and it often goes unnoticed. And that's fine with me because it does get noticed by the listener, even though they don't know they're noticing it. Yeah. It's, it's like contradicting saying it goes unnoticed, but, but when people want to play something again, you know, like over and over, it, it's, it's, it's going to have to be sequenced properly. The last few songs on Alice Cooper, Love It to Death, perfect example of sequencing, right? Like these are real important things. And like I said, nobody wants to listen to eight seconds between a song, between each song. Do you ever get detailed sequencing notes from artists or is that rare? Uh, all the time. Very common. Because I, w- I would have been the artist that gave those notes. Yeah. And that's totally fine. Like, and that's great. That tells me that they've thought about it. You know, like they'll, a lot of times they'll send me an MP3 or like a 16 bit waveform of the sequence as they've laid it out. And I'm fucking weird, man. I'm like OCD about certain shit, but I can't like, you know, like the way I load the dishwasher, like (laughs) it's like ridiculous. Like I I get, I get into a discussion with my wife about the dishwasher once, uh, like at least once a week because I just fucking throw everything in there. But like when I'm working on like the, the, the waveforms of of like, like I'll go in and I'll align them by sample, right? Like I'll just get it perfect. Oh, wait, wait. So you don't, so you're not supposed to just throw everything in there? I mean, I, that's what I always thought, but I, man, like, I'm really bad at it, dude. <laughs> Me too. I'm terrible to live with. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> she's dealt with it for so long. But I tell you what, like, with with sequencing, I'll, I'll align it to the fucking sample, man. <laughs> like, I'll just, pam, right there, you know? And uh, I take pride in that. I take pride in, in doing the, that extra work. And, yeah, I don't think that really, some, I, sometimes I think I could get away with just kind of, loosely aligning things or, or something like that. But I just, it's the weird OCD that I have with, with things like that. The way that something is sequenced makes such a huge difference to how an album feels over time, Yep, which determines in large part, in my opinion, whether or not people are going to listen to the album over and over or just individual songs over and over. Right. Exactly. And I realize that we're in a streaming culture and people skew towards singles a lot but i don't know man i think at the gym when driving like uh lots of activities people will listen to eps or albums all the way through or at least a few of the songs and i definitely think if you can keep the excitement going or keep it interesting through how it's sequenced that's definitely a vote towards listening to it again yeah and that's how i grew up i mean i grew up flipping records or you know driving long distances in the box of cassettes is out of reach and I'm by myself and I got a cassette in and it's on auto reverse. I'm going to have to listen to it again. If you know, if I, unless I want silence. Yeah. I'm going to need to like, it's, it, it's going to need to be sequenced really well. And there's things that even go back to the technical side of, of the craft with 12 inch records back when they would squeeze as much time on, on a side as they could. And you're dealing with a physical medium. You're dealing with grooves that, you know, can be big and sound great and have a lot of low end or you're dealing with grooves that can be really small and shallow and sound really thin and get distorted if you got too much music on it you know there's some Judas Priest albums that are a good example like the the last song on the side might be kind of a a, a more like a shorter like kind of 
more ballad song or one that they would consider less less important. Although I think that the first few Judas Priest albums, the last song on the record is the best one. But like, you know, it's the way that they would they would they would place things strategically because the distortion would occur toward the inner grooves where things get get closer and closer. And and that's a technical move that affected sequencing and and was due to the physical limits limitations of a medium and that's a move that should still happen these days when people are planning on going to vinyl do you find that people still think about that at all considering that vinyl is still actually a thing not as much as they need to but i try to educate people on it and i i i, I try to give them my my input on it i am a quality over quantity person. I've got people trying to squeeze seven minutes on a side of a seven inch. And I will suggest cutting songs because it will sound pretty bad. The noise floor gets raised. The cut is really going to be, it's going to be quiet. It's going to sound, it's just going to sound, sound bad. And musicians can be insecure or they can be indecisive about what to cut when, when they're trimming things down or, you know, insecure thinking that, Maybe people won't buy a, a, a four-song seven-inch versus a six-song seven-inch, but I mean, some uh, some of my favorite seven-inches have two songs on them. You know, it's like, and they're 45s, right? Like, so it, it needs to be thought about a lot more. Um, and I think people are he- heading that direction. I think it's just kind of, you know, the, the big vinyl resurgence that happened a few years back. I think that the knowledge of the technology behind it and how to sequence for vinyl and, and things like that is, I think that trailed the the resurgence that happened and people are catching up. But, you know, you still got people trying to trying to put a 26, 27 minute side on a, on a 12 inch. And sometimes it can be done, but, you know, you're always going to sound better with, with, with less music at a faster speed on vinyl. Always. You know, with the vinyl resurgence and mastering for vinyl, there, the very superficial understanding of mastering for vinyl that I think is kind of common knowledge among people who know is be careful with the low end. But that's as far as the common knowledge goes. I never hear people talking about what you're talking about right now. I mean, there's a lot to it. You're dealing with a physical medium. I mean, you're dealing with grooves. You're dealing with a needle that rides over grooves, right? Like, so square waves don't work very well. (laughs) You know, like clipped waveforms, heavily limited waveforms don't work very well. Uh, Low end that's not centered, not going to work very well. And these are things, too, that cutting engineers will adjust for if they are incorrect or they'll send it back. But they usually make the adjustment by just turning things way down and cutting a record real quiet. And it's unfortunate, but that's why you definitely want to master for vinyl and not just, you know, one batch of masters for everything. They do need a, they do need a special, a different treatment. And it's not just less low end. Yeah, exactly. Not just less low end. I mean, you've got high end that needs to be controlled in in a way that is not just that it's attenuated you're talking about speed you're talking about the speed of the high end and how that affects the cutting head on on a lathe when when the engineer is cutting the lacquer and you know a lot of i leave a lot of decisions up to the cutting engineers but i do try to provide i provide vinyl premasters that are best suited for a flat cut and for them to make minimal adjustments if needed but you know i i also think that there are some people who don't care how the vinyl sounds because they come with download codes you know like 
it's a product. It's a package. I mean, that's cool too, but I, I do like a good sounding, sounding record. Why do it if it's not going to sound as good as it can? Right. Because it's a, it's something you can sell, you know, but weird. I mean, I, I, that's just, that's just a theory. That's just a hunch. I, I don't know. I, I think people, honestly, I think most bands do want their vinyl to sound great. It's just something people don't often think about. That's okay. They, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I, you know, you can, it's a, there's only room for so much material on it. You know, it's not a, it's not a CD. It's not a, it's not a digital storage medium. You're limited by things here. Do you think that ideally if people want to go to vinyl, if that's part of the vision, that it should be taken into account earlier in the process, like in the arrangements in the mix at times how so well bass drops <laughs> all right bass drops need to one. go man <laughs> like, all right bass drops ba bass drops really are no offense to anybody who likes to put bass drops on records but i have a feeling that they one day will make things sound really dated but also yeah they're, they're going to distort on vinyl you know bass guitar kick drum things like that that stuff when going to vinyl low end needs to be in the center You've got lateral movement and, and vertical movement, and that stuff needs to be in the center. It cannot be panned to the side. Most of the time with, with the music, with like rock, metal, punk, and hardcore and things like that, it's not something that comes up. You know, it's not like, it's not like the bass is way over here or something. But like when you're dealing with like electronic music and things like that, sometimes you might have an 808 way out to the side or something like that. I don't know. So yeah, like there are things that should be taken into account, but there are also things that can be addressed in mastering too, with, with, you know, making things mono or, or narrowing the stereo image below a certain frequency, things like that. Um, even cutting engineers, they have their elliptical EQs, uh, and things that they will use for those things. But yeah, I mean, things do need to be taken into account in earlier in the process. And like I said, in the songwriting process, like if you're a person who writes songs or records with a sequence in mind, then you need to be aware of the time and the, the edits that may need to happen um, if you're going to be squeezing a lot of music onto a record. Do you ever get the feeling that uh, some of the stuff that gets sent your way where they say they want to go to vinyl just isn't built for it? Like it's just better off not going to vinyl? No, I, I don't. So there's a way to work it. There's a way to work it. I think that sometimes maybe it's just, it's better to take what would be a 20-minute record that could fit on a 33 RPM side of a 12-inch, right? Like it could fit just fine, but cutting that in half and putting it on another 12-inch at 45 RPM and like doing a double LP or something like that, it's always going to be, that's always going to sound better. I mean... Think about it's it's with the tracking with with 33 versus 45. Think about riding a skateboard. You're riding a skateboard over rough pavement. You're going slow. You feel the pavement, right? You start yes. going downhill. The pavement's still rough. You speed up. You're not feeling the pavement as much, right? Because you're going quicker. You're going faster. Everything's picking up, and that's exactly how it is with vinyl speed. It's almost like a, it's a, it's like a resolution thing. Not to mention, like I keep repeating, the bigger, deeper grooves going to sound better and louder. And the noise floor of vinyl always comes up when when it get when the cut gets turned down because the dynamic range is so low. So when people try to press uh, or or want to press ten inches. Um, <laughs> My record collection, the 10 inches are like the island of misfit toys, you know, like the, like I'm <laughs> like, oh shit, I, I never listened to them, right? Like 
they have to get cut down from 12 inches, so they end up being more expensive, right? So, like, why do a 33 RPM 10 inch when you can do a 12 uh, a 12 inch at 45 RPM? Why do people do that? I really don't know. I think maybe some people think that a 10 inch, like they haven't checked prices and they think that a 10 inch might be cheaper or they think that they've got, you know, less time that than is warranted to do a 12 inch. Some people just want to be weird and quirky. That's cool too. You know, like more power to you. I mean, it's your music. Your do what you want, right? Like I fortunately have never re- recorded, played on, or released a 10-inch, and I'm proud of that. But, like, you know, if you want to do it, go ahead, man. Fuck it. I don't give a shit. You know, like, it's just, it's one of those, wor- like, funny things for me. Like, I-, I don't know. All right. So, you know that there's a philosophy out there that mastering is straight up like a transactional service, right? Not like a, an artistic thing. Now, I like like we've been saying, like, neither of us really agree with with that but a lot of people do think that the that it's like printing something uh like you send it to the printer they do whatever technical process they have to and get it done mastering some people see it like that where do you think is the right i guess the right window or the right gap or the right uh context in which a mastering engineer should get opinionated and uh throw their two cents in Okay, so first we start talking about ten inches, and now we're going to talk about this. You're going to, I'm going to get fired up. <laughs> All right, like <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Every step along the way is is when you're making a record, when you're dealing with people that are that are processing music that you've created. Those people are putting something of theirs into it. They're putting their decisions into it, and they're putting their passions into it. As a musician, I would be happy to hear any feedback that that anyone along the way would have, right? Unless it's a printer that's like, hey, man, we won't print this because it's satanic, right? Like, just go somewhere else, right? Like, so, but like, if people have feedback about things, I want to know because I want the product to be better and I want it to be a culmination of all the talent involved, you know? Like, I I want to read a credits list of a record and go, fuck, man, look at all these people on this, man. That's amazing, right? Like, so... Sometimes people don't want to hear it. Sometimes they're they're set in stone. But I, I always try to preface it with, you know, a, a hey, a bit of unsolicited advice here. My opinion is that this might be better this way or that. That's really only though when I feel strongly about things. I think, I think often you know musicians are they know what they're doing, and I, I'm pretty lucky too that I'm dealing with a lot of musicians who have a vision and they know what they're doing. I'm not going to tell somebody like, hey, man, get rid of these bass drops, even if I hate them. You know, I'm going to do my best to make those bass drops work on their record, you know. And I put aside all my musical opinions when I'm dealing with this because I'm not being hired as a critic. I'm being hired as somebody to make their record, make their recording a record. So to each their own, some, some mastering engineers might feel like they should be just transactional and technical. That's fine. They will attract clientele who want that. And that's probably actually a good thing because if that is what the client wants, then they should be working with the person who can provide that. Yeah, exactly. There's no right way to do it. It's like, again, going back to recording and mixing engineers. There's some recording engineers who prefer to do more in mixing and there's some recording engineers who like to get everything sounding great on the, in the tracking and then take you know half an hour to mix it and it sounds great. You know, So again, it's just... It all boils down to the client's vision. And I hate that word 
client, artist, to the musicians, to the people making the music, the creators. It boils down to their vision and their choices. My problem these days, man, is artificial intelligence. Like the AI mastering? Yeah. That's what really gets me fired up a lot. Tell me about it. Until they like perfect artificial sweetener. They're not going to fucking perfect artificial mastering, okay? <laughs> like, I, I, I can't, like, when Diet Coke tastes like a real Coke, I'll be, I'll be, like, worried. But what I do worry about is, like, they target a budget audience who will go to them, and that's fine. Like, you know, if, if somebody can't afford me and they can afford to use Lander, whatever. But the problem I have with it is that it takes a, an art and a craft, and it cheapens it down to a fucking algorithm. And that pisses me off. It takes what I have you know, spent years of my life honing and, and practicing, losing sleep over, sweating, not coming home to see my, to tuck my kid in because I'm working late. And it takes all that and boils it down to an algorithm based on an algorithm that analyzes somebody's, the, the spectral analysis of somebody's music and then turns it up to a, a certain dB level and EQs it the, the way they think it should be, the way that the algorithm says that it should be EQ'd or whatever. It gets me because it's not always going to, it's, it's, it's not always going to be right. It's always going to be wrong. I will swear by that. The thing about it is, uh, I don't think it'll ever replace a good or a great mastering engineer. I just, I don't see that much like the way that superior drummer will never replace an awesome drummer in a good environment, like no machine can recreate that. But there is a situation, I think, where the AI mastering, and tell me if you disagree, here's my thoughts on where where its place is in a positive light, is uh, people who are making songwriting demos and just want them to sound a little bit more finished because they got to show it to other people. And other people these days don't, it's not like it was in the 90s where people can listen through a demo that didn't sound good and understand what it's going to be like. People have lost that ability. Um, they need shit loud or they're going to think it sounds like shit. So I think for a musician who's songwriting, who needs their songwriting demos a little bit louder, who can't just go pay for real mastering every single time they need to, uh, they need to do that. I think that that's a perfect, uh, that's a, it's a perfect solution for that, but I don't think that it's a good replacement at all for the real thing, like in an album context. There's also plenty of freeware limiters out True. there. True. I mean, Absolutely. That, can, that can work pretty well and free EQs that can work pretty well. And yeah, maybe it's more work for a songwriter to do that, but you're learning more. If you, you know, if you sit down and you have no idea how to use a limiter, but you just wrote and recorded a song. You could probably figure it out. Yeah, you can figure it out. So the AI thing, it, it's it's mastering to me is such a custom process that like everything takes a different approach. I'm never, ever going to just preset, preset, preset things. I'm never just going to run everything through the same chain. I'm always going to do things differently. And like I said earlier with the sequencing thing, I can't sit and tell an AI like, hey, man, I want this sequence just like just like Danzig, the second Danzig album, man, you know, like... It's not going to know what I'm talking about. It's like, say you, say you want like a, a pair of pants tailored, right? Like, what, are you going to upload a picture of yourself to the internet and send your pants in and get them back? Dude, I tried that once. I tried that once with a digital uh, tailor. There's such thing as a digital tailor? Yeah, it works the way that you just said. Not good. I didn't know that was a real thing. Yes, it's a real thing. What's next? E-funeral? You like... <laughs> 
I fuck around with technology a lot. Just some of it's good. Like uh, the fact that I can change all the colors of my mood lights with my app. That's killer. I don't have to go to every single bulb and change it. Like I like mood lighting. I don't need to go to every single bulb in my place and change it. That's awesome. Stuff like that's cool. The digital tailor was a total miss. <laughs> total miss. I can't believe that's a real thing. Yes, it's a real and thing. And that you've used it. Now, I don't know why I came up with that example, but God, man. Well, I used it because uh, I recently lost a shit ton of weight and I had to get all new clothes. I had to go do something and nothing fit. I needed a quick solution. And it was covid so I couldn't really go anywhere. It was just, uh, how the hell am I going to solve this problem of nothing fitting and uh, going to do this thing? But that wasn't the solution. I mean, yeah. And AI mastering to me, like, it's detrimental to the aesthetic of a record. Even if it sounds great, if there's mastering credit on there and it's mastered by an algorithm... And this is my taste, man. Like, I would feel judgmental about that, you know? Like, I want to see people involved, man. I want to I listen to stuff and think, man, why did they do that? You know? Like, why did they make that move? Or, like, that's cool. You know, I don't want to think, like, this collection of ones and zeros. The thing is that um, I did use the Superior Drummer example, but that's not even a good example. That's not a great—that's not a one-to-one -one metaphor because— even with Superior Drummer, someone has to program it. Someone has to mix it. Maybe they don't have a good drummer. So maybe that is the best possible situation that they can hope for. But uh, someone still well, has for, to From a make creative standpoint, like, decisions. yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely apples and oranges. A uh, few years ago, I was writing some songs and I used Easy Drummer. Like, I'm a guitar player. So I, if I sit down and play guitar... I typically come up, you know, I get stuck in my, my own kind of grooves and stuff. But I tried something different. I tried writing songs based on drum, like drum ideas in my head. Like when I drive to work, I've got, you know, my center console and I'll sit and I'll tap stuff and I'll be like, man, that's a cool rhythm. And I found Easy Drummer and I was like, man, what happens if I kind of program that and do this? And next thing you know, I'm like out of my element and writing some different kind of guitar stuff. And, and it was really cool creatively. So for the songwriting process and things like that, it's awesome. And yeah. Okay. Like AI in the songwriting process, like you mentioned earlier, like in, in the demo process, whatever, but like what they do, like I said, there's, there's things that can be controlled by, by the creator that are still going to be, you know, that are going to give you better results. Um, maybe, maybe I'm going to, I'm just going to say maybe. And the reason I say maybe is because, um, I have heard thousands upon thousands of student mixes at this point through the nail, the mix contests. And, uh, sometimes I should back away from that limiter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Might, <laughs> it might be better for everyone. <laughs> maybe cut some of that low end that you can't hear because you're mixing through laptop speakers before you hit the limiter. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. I, I'm more joking than anything else though. Yeah. And it's my bias that says it's going to be a better, better result there too. Like, you know, it's, it's just my bias and my absolute seething hatred towards AI mastering. <laughs> I, I understand where you're coming from though, in a purely purest sense, I agree with you. I definitely see the benefit in the scenario I was talking about, but uh, but I definitely think that there's no replacement for the real thing. Maybe one day, but we're not there yet. 
Yeah, give me a Diet Coke. Tell me it's real. Fool me, and I'll be I'll be I'll be worried that the Borg are going to show up. All right, like. But until then, yeah, it's more of like an annoyance thing. I man, I got an email from Lander last week too. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll go ahead and say it because you know it was like one of those. Uh, they're doing this affiliate program now, and it's like, hey, like we checked out your website, and we have probably you know a lot of the same kind of clients, and you know here's the, our affiliate program if you want to be involved. And do they know what you do? See, that's what I think. I think they thought that, or or it's it was like a probably a form letter. I just went off to, uh, to all these websites, right? Like I'm sure dozens, if not hundreds, of other people got them. They assumed that they're recording or mix engineers. I'm a mastering engineer, man. I got it. I got that email on April first. I was like. I thought somebody was making, well, I thought it was an April Fool's joke. I really did. And and then I'm like, you know what? They just probably don't realize that I am a mastering engineer. <laughs> no, they probably didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> uh, yeah that is kind of funny. I didn't reply. Uh, you know, somebody's just, somebody's just doing a job, honest work there. Unless that dude was an algorithm. God, which wouldn't surprise me. That's entirely possible. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. The beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Speaking of all these new tools, I agree that uh, there are some tools that get rid of the human process and could be detrimental. But there's a lot of new tools that, and the way that the music industry is uh, evolving that I think is super positive, like uh, the way that it's, a lot easier now. There's a lower barrier to entry to just creating stuff. You don't need to wait to go to some shitty local studio to to get your like I used to have to. Oh yeah. And I think that uh, 
that you can get better faster at music. This generation that's in high school now and younger, I think are growing up into a much better musical world than the one I had in the 90s. Um, and I know that there's positive stuff about the way things were done. People had to learn how to play their parts, et cetera, you know, all that. But I just think about how much effort it took to go to some shitty ass studio for like one weekend to record a, a demo that ended up sounding like fucking garbage with some guy that was doing heroin the whole time. Like, as opposed to now where you can just do it, you can just do it and it can sound pretty good and you can sit there and refine it and really work on your art and anyone can with it, you know, Obviously, you need a little bit of money to get started. You don't need to buy a $10,000 computer and then $20,000 in outboard. Like you can do it for like $1,000 or $1,500. You don't need to buy three ADAP machines at $10,000 no. a <laughs> Exactly. <pop. laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's a, there's a democratization and an accessibility that uh, with music that has improved a lot. And we take for granted the short amount of time that music recording has been available to human beings. I mean, when you look at the history of it, it's a blip. I mean, what, like photography was, was like way earlier. Like we've only been recording sound for, I'm not going to say a number because I'll be way wrong. And then you'll get people like writing comments and stuff like you're actually, well, no, I'm going to, I'm going to look it up, but I, either way, like it's, it's, I would say like what a lifetime maybe, but like 1877. That was the first recorded sound. Okay, I was born in 1976, so music was it wasn't even a hundred years old when I was born. So I am now in the second century. We're like we're we're in the second century of like wait no 1860. Sorry, 1860. All right, so either way, that's such a small amount of time. With when you look at all the other technological achievements that that we've got behind us, and. We've recently, over the past couple decades, witnessed kind of the coming of age and the, the acceleration of it that came with a big technological boom, right? So, and that made things more inexpensive, more accessible to people, and it democratized the industry. You don't have to go to your friend's house with a four track and kind of keep overdub and bouncing it. Or you don't have to go to like, you know, the recording studio where the guy's like, man, y'all kind of, y'all need to turn your guitars down, man. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, the, you know, yes. that guy, the, he had a, he had a recording studio and like, he's like, what y'all doing something like fog hat or something, you know, like, and it's like, no, nah, man, we want to sound like Metallica, you know, and it's like, nope, not going to happen. Right. Like, so, I mean, it's, man, I lived in Nashville in like 20 years ago when we were still based in Nashville and big recording industry town back then, man, we toured out to the West Coast to record two albums because like we wanted to find somebody with with an ear for it and somebody who could like give us kind of what we wanted. And, you know, like it, it's it was a weird time, too, with like that weird phase between, you know, pure analog and pure digital where like mixed recalls weren't weren't real easy and stuff like explaining to people what you want. Um, you know, like, man, I, well, I don't have a record player in here, you know, like explaining to people what you want was very difficult to people who had never heard anything like that, who had no examples. They didn't have YouTube to pull up, you know, and it was like, it, it's just, it's, it's come a long way. And to be honest, I've heard some recordings that people have done on their own with like a focus, right? Interface. 
and real musicians, you know, at, in their basement, and they've taken the time to do it, that would have blown away things that people would have paid money, a lot of money for 20 years ago. Yes, absolutely. But it's also because they have the time. And, you know, when you're booking studio time, there's a time limit, right? And time costs money and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's just, but that's funny when you mentioned that about like, you know, being like, you know, recording in the, in the 90s and things like that. It was, it was a, it was a fun time. It was a funny time, but it was also like, it was just, it was interesting, you know, trying to like, trying to figure out what to do, especially like when, like, like I grew up in the South when you when back then it was, it was difficult. It was a challenge. Yeah. I'm from Atlanta. I w never went to Nashville back then, but I wonder how different Nashville was to Atlanta in the nineties. They were both kind of small Southern towns to a degree. I think mm -hmm. we would go play Atlanta all the time when we when we were in Nashville because we started in '97, so you know we would we would start tours in Atlanta and things like that. But yeah, they weren't that different. I think Atlanta had kind of a bigger bigger a little bit bigger of a punk scene than, than Nashville did at the time. But Atlanta um, now is a fucking ridiculous sprawling place. It's insane compared to what it used to be. Nashville's growing a lot too. Nashville's changed a lot too. I mean, I haven't been there. I left there in 2001, so almost 20 years. And uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. It's gotten a lot fancier than it was back then. But yeah, like back then, like I was in recording school in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And like, I mean, it was all real standard stuff. But like you could go to the um, guitar stores in Nashville and find like guitar amps big guitar amps for nothing. I bought an Ampeg V4B for 150 bucks. I've still got it. I've recorded records. It's one of my favorite amps. Those things go for, you know, 800, 900 bucks these days. You could find like, you know, Fender Twins for 500 bucks. I mean, like you could find like cheap stuff because all the session guitar players at the, the time had started like carrying around the pods. Remember the pods, the Line 6 pods? Yep, the kidney you know, bean. Shaped like a little Telecaster, you know, like they started using those. So they would go back and, you know, to studios and stuff. And they'd be like, you know, I don't really need this stuff. I'm just going to get rid of it. And like, it was crazy because you could, it was just, there was this gold mine of like cheap gear there. <laughs> it was also before eBay too, but, or before, I guess, you, you know, eBay became a big thing. You know, it's interesting. Those kidney bean pods. I remember when they came out, people were saying that they sound just as good as the real thing. And I don't think they do, but a friend of mine pulled it out like 20 years later to see how good did it really sound. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that bad. He did a YouTube video with it, like uh, doing a lot of AB against mm -hmm. the real thing or whatever it was supposed to be against what it, what those models were supposed to be. It really wasn't so bad. It's kind of amazing how good it was for back then. I've never played through one. I believe it, you know, for recording. It's not going to screw up your recording. You know, if you're pushing air, you know, if you're like, if it's live, the difference might be a lot noticeable. But like, you know, live through a solid state power amp or something versus like what what it's modeling. But it, it's not going to ruin a recording using something like that, especially like no. the leads and things like that. So why mastering? Because I didn't want to invest in a bunch of microphones and preamps. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I would move a lot, like I would, my favorite part of getting my room set up was setting up my stereo and I had this old Kenwood stereo system with these big pioneer speakers that my dad gave me. They were his in the seventies. And, uh, 
my favorite part of it was always finding the perfect spot in my room for that stereo, setting it up. I'd put on a Van Halen record because the way that the guitars were panned, you know, like every the guitars were panned to the right, <laughs> right? Like, and all the, like the reverb from the guitars was panned to the other side and everything. If I'm backwards on that, sorry, I'm a total poser, but I'm pretty sure it was on the right. Uh, so I'd put on a Van Halen record to make sure that I had, you know, that both speakers were working and that they were <laughs> correctly hooked up. And I would just sit there and like screw with the, the, you know, the bass and the treble and the loudness and the little frequency switches and stuff till I got it sounding right. And I'd just sit and, and just listen to records. And I really loved that. And I loved taking music and making it, you know, optimizing it, making it the best it could be. There was also the fact that as someone who had recorded stuff, you know, we would get our we would get our CD of our mixes with, you know, the songs having, you know, 10 or 20 seconds of silence or like stick clicks and things like that. We would send them to be mastered and we would get them back and everything would have a polish and a sheen to it. It would actually sound like a record. I could put in this CDR and it would sound like a, a record that I would listen to or something. So I was fascinated. And then I was fortunate enough, uh, this band I was in, Death Threat, uh, we were on tour. And when we recorded our first, we recorded our first album in Columbia, South Carolina at the Jam Room. And on that same tour, we toured out to the West Coast and had it mastered at Fantasy Studios with George Horn. Um, at the same time, From Ashes Rise had a seven-inch master there. And so both those records got mastered while we sat behind George Horn and watching him do his work and actually cut the lacquers. And it was fascinating to me. And it was fascinating that I was in this room looking at all the this acoustic treatment and all these angles and things like that that were there, you know, that served a purpose for listening. And it just fascinated me. I felt like a lot of people did want to get into recording and to into mixing and, and things like that, but there weren't a lot of my peers who wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was mastering. And it was still viewed kind of as a as a this weird dark art. You know, you send your music off, you get back a CD, and it's like, you know, what did you do? So I really began to study it and to practice and 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 learn as much as I could and. I wanted to do to do it for a living. I wanted to 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 be able to go to work every day and and love what I do, and and I still do. And because of that, you know, I, I felt like there was an advantage to having to being able to work with the current speed of the internet and and being able to work with remote clients. You know, like over half my clients are in Europe. That's not something that I could do as a recording and mix engineer, right? Like. To get that level of work, it takes a while, right? Like, so there were a lot of things involved. But it sounds like at the core, you just naturally gravitated towards it. Yeah. And I was thinking about this the other day because, you know, I, I mentioned like when I would set up my stereo and I've always been sensitive to, to sounds. Like if there's a flutter echo in a room, I can hear it. Like, and most people can, but they don't notice, they don't know what it, that is or whatever. I, I know I'm like, there's a flutter echo, right? But like... I've always been sensitive to sound and to placement of things and the placement of speakers. And so I kind of liken mastering to, to like this. Okay, so mixing is loading the van. You're on tour. You're loading the van. That's mixing, right? If your bass player wants to bring two SVT cabinets, your drummer is going to have to bring a smaller kit and you're going to play half stacks. If you want to play half stacks, 
or if you want to play full stacks, you know, maybe one guitar player can play a full stack, one plays a half stack, right? Like this is mixing, right? Like you're loading the van, you're playing that game of Tetris where you're getting all the pieces to work together. Coming from the background that I did where most of the shows that we would play were in improvised venues, you know, things that weren't necessarily a rock club or something like that, where we get up, we play, there's, there's no microphones on the instruments. There might be one microphone there at, you know, for both of us to share, whatever, like we would really have to focus on the way that we set up our, 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 our gear, the way that we set up where the sweet spots on our amps were, all of that. We had a method to it. And that's kind of what mastering is to me. Like mixing is loading the van. Max mastering is taking everything out of the van, setting it up and, and having it sound a certain way live, right? Like, this is exclusionary to like, you know, clubs where people would mic the guitars or whatever. But like, that's, that's just how, how it is. And it, that's also something that I like, I really loved that part of it. And we put a lot of pride into perfecting and honing that. And it even went into our practice space. Like when at practice, it, we would, you know, kill our backs, moving stuff around just to make, make things sound better to us because it improved the creative process. So yeah, basically mastering because... I just I love working with a sonic palette. It is kind of kind of like magic to me. It is kind of like minuscule fluctuations in air pressure that that vibrate your eardrum that send electrical impulses to your brain. It's fascinating. It's a great answer. One thing that I think uh, is really really important for anyone going into an artistic field or really anything, but especially with these artistic fields where it's like part customer service, part creativity, part art, part technical. Like it's all these different things. I think it's really important to understand what it is that turns you on about whatever part of the process and also understand what allows you to do your best work. Because I think not everyone has that kind of awareness, but one of the things that I've noticed through doing these podcasts and now the mix and then also my other podcast, Riff Hard podcast, where we're talking to guitar players is one thing that everybody that I talk to tends to share is this really, really honed in self-awareness for what it is that they want to do with like their own vision for themselves and uh, what it is that they love about it and why they pursued it. And I think that that's it. It's such a big deal because I think a lot of people will do what they think they're supposed to do or get into the things that they that they think are the proper path but might not be right for them. And the people that I've noticed who tend to do well and then last a long time are doing the thing or the things that allow them to do their best work that keep turning them on mentally year after year after year that don't allow them to get burned out. There's always something new in it that they find and can get themselves excited about. Like whatever that is, they should figure that out. Like for instance, with guitar, you know, the luthier type, I don't understand that whatsoever, but I am so happy they exist. Um, as a guitar player, I could never imagine wanting to be a guitar tech or a luthier. Hell no. Hell no, right? It's just not who I am. Dude, I started like picking it up last year, like with my, in my free time, dude, like, I've got a guitar hanging in my basement right now mm -hmm. that's been taken apart for like 
nine months and I'm like, I'm scared to touch it. Right. Like, and I've done shit. Like I did, I learned how to like level my frets and all that stuff. I'm like, holy shit. Like I didn't know fret buzz was this easy. I wish I'd have known this a long time ago, but I'm glad I didn't. But there's things that I've done like to my own guitars that I'm like, holy shit. If that had been like somebody's like prized Les Paul. I would have been ruined, right? Like, but I'm like, I play metal picks. I don't fucking, I don't care. But like, you know, like it's like, that's like working. It's like open heart surgery to me, man. Like, yeah. And you want to entrust that with someone who's super passionate about that, who (laughs) exactly that's what they obsess over. That's what they're into. The best luthiers I know, Tartex I know, that's what they do. I mean, they play a little, but really what they do is fuck with guitars and they love it and they're great at it. And, they figured out that that was their calling. And imagine AI, an AI luthier, right? <laughs> like, I mean, imagine somebody builds like a 3D <laughs> printer, turns a 3D printer into a guitar setup thing. First thing I'm going to be doing is adjusting my my bridge. You know, like that's a feel thing, you know, like, and circling back to the burnout thing too, it's, I think burnout, burnout might be just kind of the final stage. And I think struggling I with agree. burnout, like saying struggling with burnout is not, is like struggling with, with the... I think burnout happens more when you don't see it coming and when you let it happen and you let it get to you. I, I think it's more like struggling with the with dimming. It's a dimming, right? Like the flame is starting to dim mm-hmm. and you need to like, you need to add some more fuel to the fire. You need to give it some more air. You need to do whatever it takes to keep it going. So yeah, so circling back to that, like the ones, the ones who are passionate about their craft and the ones who are, are, are willing to do that are the ones who are going to to have the energy to get up and and go to the woodshed. But if you're not willing to do that, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're a lazy sack of shit or something. It could be that this is not the right thing for you. Maybe it's time to move on to the next stage in your life. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. There's people out there who go full bore on something and then they go, they're done and they go full bore on something else. That's my uh, style of doing things. It's not for everyone. In a certain way, I've, kind of do that too i'm wiring some db25 cables right now so <laughs> so like you know like these i'm like oh cool i'm like i'm getting into making my own cables and stuff you know like but uh but yeah like that you know at the heart i like to keep things grounded and centered and and i mean at my heart man like it's it's music dude like it's my my favorite records are never gonna change you know like the stuff that gives me like I'll sit down and I'll listen to it and I'm just like, God, you know, I'll never get sick of it. It's, it's, it's at the, it's, those are the things that are at your heart and they're, they're not going to change. And there's some things that you, you know, records that you might put on and you're like, man, this is awesome. This is great. And you listen to it all the time for like a year or two. And you're like, you know what? I haven't listened to that in a while. I don't really want to listen to it or might revisit. And it's like, ah, it's not feeling it. You know, it's different stages of your life. you know, we, we do different things. And for me being like music really grounds me and working with music grounds me and keeps me sane. And it, it makes me a nutcase. It's taken years off my life probably, but I wouldn't trade it for the world, man. You know, did you ever see a plan B? Like, did you ever think it wasn't going to work out or have you always just gone for something in music? Just fuck it. We're making this work. No, my motto. One, 
my motto. That's like the our motto is is <laughs> is uh, go big. You know, like no, I don't. I don't have a motto anyway. I don't know why I said my motto is, but. <laughs> One thing I like to say is dumb enough to try it, good enough to make it work, right? Yep. And that's kind of how it happened with this, man. Like, so (laughs) when I went full-time, I had been doing mastering part-time and working at a motorcycle shop. Man, in one week, I left my job at the motorcycle shop to go full-time and found out we had a baby on the way. (laughs) (laughs) When was this? This was... March of 2012. Okay. Big week. I'd been doing it like part-time for years at that point, but like the motorcycle, like the motorcycle job paid the, paid the, paid the rent, paid the bills. Right. Like, and it was funny. I was walking down the street and I saw a fork, literal a fork in the road that the day that I left my job, I saw a fork, like a, a fork that you eat with in the road. And I was like, huh, <laughs> that's the universe sending me a sign. It's a fork in the road. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> on the nose. Gotta go one way or the other. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm gonna I'm going into it. I left the job and then found out <laughs> like then we were like, oh man. So I so man, I really had to put some work into it. It was a lot of luck involved too. And you know what they say about luck? It's it's a combination of 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 preparation and, and timing, you know, and I was prepared and the timing was right. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the luck factor because, uh, and I definitely have two philosophies on it. The one is the, you know, you make your own luck kind of th- shit, which I believe in to an extent. But there's also another side to it that you can't control, uh, which is the side that involves other people. Um, yeah, that whether or not you meet the right person who's going to pass your name on to the right person who is willing to say yes to working with you at that time, that kind of shit, that's, you got zero control over that. You can work your ass off your whole life. Yeah. It's who you surround yourself with. But I mean, you know, in a certain way you do, because like you make, you make your friends, you choose your friends and then you meet people through your friends and, and you surround yourself with a peer group that helps you make these connections and and that's how you connect with people. So yeah. Well, you can set the stage for luck to happen. Yeah, but that's what—that's the preparation part of luck. Yes, you're right, and your skills—you're prepared with your skills. So yeah, I, I I was I was real fortunate, and I had some people that took a chance on me at the time too. And I mean, I felt like I had a lot to prove, and I had I had the time to prove it, you know. And I I did my absolute best. Man, that sounds fucking scary, though. Quitting your job and then finding out about the kid when what you're going into is something as risky as a music industry career. Yeah, it was. Did you have any like urge to be like, can I have my job back? Nope. Good. That's awesome. I had the urge to fight and, and claw my way into where I am right now. And if this is ever jeopardized, I will have that urge again to, to, to keep it. It's interesting. I don't know if you feel this, but, uh, one of the things that I have now, and I've had it for a while, and I didn't have this early on in my career, is now my urge to grow things is as strong as my urge to make sure they don't go away. That's where, obviously, at the beginning, um, there was nothing there was nothing that could go away. So th- I didn't worry about that. All I worried about was build, build, create, create, create. 
but uh, there is definitely a part of my brain now that is uh, very much on defense. And I go, I go between the two because I feel like you need a good offense in order to keep on growing and evolving, but uh, not at the expense of defense. And so this urge to, to protect, to protect it is, uh, it's pretty strong. It's gotten stronger with the years too. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day. Like I've got this, uh, Lego recording studio that my son and I built. Lego recording studio? Yeah, dude. Like we built, it was on the cover of a tape op a few years ago. Like I want to see it. I'll send you pictures of it, but it was like something that we did and like, and I was just building and building. I couldn't stop. I couldn't get to a stopping point. And I would build it and I'd build it and I'd keep going and I dropped it one day. And I was building like the outside of it and I dropped it. Like dropped it on the floor? Yeah. Like physically? Oh. Yeah. No, I can put it back together. I, and I, you know, I, I put it back together. But like what came off was the outside, the walls and stuff. And then I thought, you know what? That's, that's my stopping point. Everything that's left is what I built and what I was proud of. All the stuff that broke off is just the stuff that I kept going at because I, I didn't know when to stop. This is it. That's, it's done. And so the other day I, I got kind of depressed. I was thinking about it like it's just collecting dust, you know. And But then I thought, well, that's why these things end up collecting dust because they've, they've served a purpose for us and we're hanging on to them. And maybe we need to break out the duster every now and then, but we don't need to pick them up and keep building. We need to know when things are, are done and they can still be part of our lives. They can still be something that we share photos of with people. They can still be something, a guitar that we pick up and play and tune every now and then or restring. But, you know, it's, it's, I struggle sometimes with, with getting depressed or sad when I see all my guitars, like, haven't played in months and they've got dust all of them over them. But like, that, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's, the dust is there because, because they're, they're protected and they're in a, a safe place. And it's there because we haven't, you know, I need to, I need to clean, but like, it's the things that we hang on to. Yeah. I mean, there's a, probably a pretty good reason for why it's collecting dust. You know what? Like I'd rather my guitars collect dust and me have like all these great memories of being with my kid than, you know, not seeing him for weeks at a time because I'm on tour. Plus you already did that. I already did that. Yeah. I already did that. And being a dad is definitely one of the most challenge. It's it's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done, but like, yeah, I already did that, you know? And, but through all these stages of my life, it's music. And, and I want to be able to teach, you know, teach my son an appreciation for music. I want him to, to be able to have my guitars. I've got to find a balance there between like being pushy, like, come on, man, let's listen to Black Sabbath, you know, like, <laughs> or just being like, oh, you like that? Uh, you like that? You like that Katy Perry song, huh? Like a uh, cool. Yeah. You know, like it's a balance. I don't want to push him too hard and have him go one way. And I don't want to like not push him at all. So, but yeah, I already did it. You know, man, I didn't like, (laughs) I did it. And then I'm like in my mid forties and I've got an eight year old. And I think about my parents who were like in their early thirties when I was his age, you know, it's like, wow, they probably had a lot more energy than I do now. But still, yeah, I already did all that. It's interesting when you have already done something and uh, you feel like it's done. I think it's a super personal decision, one. And two, I think a lot of people who haven't done those things, who want to, 
have a hard time understanding why you would feel that way. But I think it's because they haven't done it yet. So they're still coming at it from the angle of like, how could you give that up? That's so awesome. Like, how could you possibly give that up? But they don't realize is, uh, yeah, it's awesome, but um, doesn't have to be awesome forever. No. Yeah. You can change what you want. Yeah. Make memories. Make memories. You know, write the stuff down. Find old, find old tapes, find old like tapes that you, that your, that your drummer took on, on tour. And when he, when he bought a video camera and, and get them digitized, remember all this stuff, you know, like print out photos, put them in a photo album, like be, be friends with, with the people that you share those experiences with. I am incredibly fortunate that my best friends are in my band and that I've been playing music with them for almost 25 years now and that our sons are all within a couple of years of each other a couple like and that they play together and like it's just it, it it's it's that's awesome. rare like, it's very rare and like yeah. like the last show we played was in it was in the netherlands in september of 2019 and uh we got done we got off the stage and i'm getting pictures of like our families were all at this cabin on Mount Hood and our kids are all in this like hot tub together. Just like, and I'm like, dude, amazing. Right. Like we're all up here and like yeah, our kids are there. Like, it's just, it's awesome, dude. Like, it's just like having those experiences with those people and like with my friends and my bandmates, like, man, it's something like that is just, it, it's, it's, it, it's, awe-inspiring. I have no words for it. Is part of what you like about music, aside from the music part, is the fact that this is a very uh, friend-oriented business? Yeah. I come from, like, you know, from the punk and hardcore scene, right? The punk and hardcore scene. You think of the word scene, right? Like, a group of connected people. It was just, everything was just, the, it was just the perfect combination of things. We were all in the South, in in you know, I grew up in a, in a town where there wasn't, like, there were only a handful of us, of the, of the, you know, people who listened to that kind of music. And we were tight because of it. And we were the weirdos. We were the freaks that made us tighter. Yeah, it, it was a connection. And that connection started really early. And that connection grew when we started touring and touring over and over again and staying at the same places and dealing with the same people in the same towns who became really good friends, um, over the years. And yeah, it, it music and, and camaraderie to me really go hand in hand. I agree. And even in the studio world that happens, so whether it's a producer working with a band, you develop a camaraderie with that. You have to, if you don't, Shit's not going to go well. That camaraderie um, and that connection, I think, has to happen with uh, almost everybody you work with. It and even when you're dealing with uh, the business side of things, it's a little bit harder sometimes. But at the end of the day, the uh, people on the business end that I've done the most business with consistently over the years—I'm talking over the decades—are people I have the most camaraderie and connection to, for sure. Right. And I've, I've been able to reconnect with a lot of people since I haven't toured in, in ages. I haven't seen in ages who I've been able to, you know, do work with. And I say with, not for, but with, you know, and it allows me to reconnect with people. And 
it just it's a great new stage in in my life and it makes it honestly makes like the the what i see as the dystopian aspects of the the digital age like it puts a positive spin on a lot of that like you know being able to text people that you know are across the country and 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 things like that the camaraderie man it's it's yeah like another vinyl record that i would recommend like looking at if you want to see a picture of like how camaraderie can be captured on an album is i think it's um rod stewart okay rod stewart every picture tells a story i believe it is and i believe it's the gatefold of it is all the musicians and engineers and everybody involved in that record and they're out on a soccer field and they just they're just hanging out like posed you know it's like one of those big posed for the camera like they're all like this smiles on their faces and it's got like their names and stuff and uh one of them one of the one of their musicians on the record wasn't pictured he was like not pictured he decided not to get out of bed that day right like it's a joke you know it's just <laughs> it's fun like and that's the kind of camaraderie that makes for for great records and makes us want to keep doing this it makes us you know it's it keeps it's it it makes things less reunion e you know like oh like here's the reunion of uh every year we have the reunion of our our um our military group or our high school or or you know every five years or whatever like it's it's things that just impromptu reunions you know impromptu reunions with between two people between a dozen people whatever the connection is important and man it definitely translates to music too because it's there's this friendly kind of competitiveness that you get with connecting with people that where good friends doing the same thing make each other better and and there's more than enough bands to go around yeah in fact i think band names are now a uh, they're a non-renewable resource they're starting to like be recycled so i would just add a psa to uh, bands to make sure you uh, do a deep uh, search engine search for your band name before uh, naming it i'm sure you get asked by people young people um like, how do I get my band signed? How do I do what you do for a living? How do I, you know, do anything in music? And uh, I definitely think that in addition to the actually getting good at what you do part, like, I think that's a given, in my opinion, like, get good at what you do. But um, aside from that is start making friends. Yeah. That's oh, like, yeah. start early. Just start making friends. Yeah, get out of the house. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Surround yourself with the right people. Yeah, exactly. And you might not find them at first. That's why you need to start making friends. One thing I've noticed is the best opportunities, like I said before, come from people that I've known for a really, really long time. And not every single time we talk is about opportunities. And then there's also a bunch of stuff that we've talked about doing that hasn't worked out. But uh, our friendship remains, and uh, that's where a lot of the awesome stuff has come from. But when when I met a lot of these people, it wasn't necessarily about doing work with them. I was just meeting them and being introduced to them and making friends. And some in some cases, nothing happened business-wise for five, ten years. And then something we did together ended up being one of the most significant things I've ever done. And if I hadn't been making friends a decade before that or more, it wouldn't have happened. And so I just tell people, just start making friends without a goal other than making friends. Yeah, make friends. And you know you're, you know you're doing it right when you start seeing these 
crazy kind of cosmic coincidences like start popping up. And I'll give you an example. I just posted a thing about this on the social media uh, a couple weeks ago. But when I worked at the motorcycle shop, I bought a motorcycle from this guy who ran, who still runs a um, production company d- doing like music for film and things like that and, and audio for film. Back in the 90s, he had a partner and they had a studio in his basement. And actually, I've got a couple acoustic panels back here that I got off the guy that I bought the motorcycle from. So fast forward years later, it's 2015, we were buying a house and I meet my next door neighbor, great guy who I've become very good friends with. Tim is his name and he was that guy's partner in the 90s. And that studio was in Tim's basement. Okay, wow, crazy coincidence. Now the even crazier coincidence is that Tim back in the 90s had bought the monitors that the soffits in this studio right here were built around in the 90s. And those monitors are in his basement now. His kid used to play in the basement of this studio because it's been here. This is this place has been here for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so the monitors that my studio right now, they, they used to sit in this room are now next door to my house in his basement, right? Like crazy cosmic coincidence. And that's not even the, the that's not even the, the, the first thing. Like there's many more that uh, it's just, you know, different stories, but like, but that's how, you know, that's how, you know, when you start doing it, when you're doing it right. And you're making those connections in, because things start I- intersecting and interleaving, you know, and, and it's not just, uh, yeah, there's some crazy coincidences out there that just where the stars align, but like some people just, you, you end up, you end up knowing a lot of people through different, for different things and, and making a lot of connections and with those connections come opportunities. So yeah, get out there and make friends. You end up running across the same people over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. You know, Portland is also like, it's grown a lot over the past few years. For a long time, it was it was a pretty small town where there was a lot of, you know, intersection between, between scenes and things like that. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want to do something and you want to, you want to do it full time or professionally or whatever, you're exactly right. Make friends because you will get opportunities from that and you will learn from your friends. And if you're doing the same thing as your friends, you guys are going to make each other better, especially if there's a little bit of one-upmanship there. And yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot more that can, that can be done, but you're right. It's the best piece of advice you can give to somebody. Well, there's a lot more that can be done, but a lot of it, in my opinion, comes down to knowing opportunities and being able to spot them and things that there's kind of no real rule book for. Because when I, when I look at people's success in music, every story is different. There's no set way to do it. It's kind of hard to tell somebody, do this, then do that, then do this, then do that. That's instinct. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That's, the, that's instinct. Yeah. What I wonder is that instinct, is it something that uh, you're born with or do you develop it? That instinct for spotting opportunities and... The whole nature versus nurture conversation. I honestly think you develop it. I mean, then I see some weird things that my son does that I do, you know, and I'm like, yeah, there's a little bit of being born with it too. But so I guess, I mean, I don't know. It's not a, not a question that I could even answer. I've, I've thought about it, but yeah. It's, it's tough. I've, I've thought about before just because uh, I want URM students to succeed. And uh, I know some will and a lot won't. I try to think about well, what could they do? Like, what did I do? 
What do people I know uh, do? What have they done? Why did shit work for me? And then I start to wonder, well, is it because I had uh, the example of my dad to look at? I didn't even do the same things as him, but is it because I saw the example of somebody successful in the music industry and all his friends and kind of started to form ideas as a kid about how this is possible and watch the way they socialized and uh, started to make the same types of social connections just through observation? Or was that shit downloaded into me? Or both? Probably both. Yeah, I mean... You, you teach the skills, but like, yeah, how many bands started between two people that met at school? A whole lot. A lot. The school part of it serves many purposes. It, it, it does teach the technical part. It does teach the skills needed, but it, it, it facilitates connections. doesn't necessarily teach you how to make connections. It kind of teaches you the instinct to make those connections, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instinct might come from being observational. It might come from just having a rhythm about you. I, I don't know, man. I, I, it's the instinct part is, is it's, it's weird. You know, it's like there's the academy and then what people do after the academy. You went to recording school, right? I did. What did it do for you? Not a whole lot. Honestly. That's what most people say. I went at a time that a lot of people wanted to be engineers. I had a history of recording industry class that was 300 people, all in that major. The curriculum did very little for me. Um, I had a a hands-on class that I did really poorly in, where it was, you know, we were learning how to work on on an Otari console. And I just never got any time with it because there was, you know, 30 people in the class and I'm looking over people to try to try to see what's going on there. Now, granted, I could have taken the initiative of maybe going in after hours, but I don't even think that I knew that that was a possibility if it was. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't, I was like, you know, 19, right? 20 years old. I started a band. I, you know, I, I wanted to go to band practice. So, yeah, it didn't do a lot. I learned that the SM57 is the industry standard snare drum mic. <laughs> what I learned a lot more from was was being a musician who recorded and you know seeing what moves a recording engine, engineer made or suggesting things that we should try and just dumb luck. Now, what it did do for me though is it brought me to a place where I connected with our drummer and brought our guitar player from Mississippi where I was to Murfreesboro and we all connected and that's how we started and that you know it grew exponentially from there with opportunities so so yeah it's there's there's that theme that technical versus instinct maybe the technical people will learn a lot of that stuff and you know they might they might be very um technically minded when it comes to recording and set in stone with their recording styles. But then there's the people who like may not retain a lot of that information, but because they're in a, a curriculum that is focused towards people with the same goals. Oh, and I learned how to roll cables too, by the way. Very important to know how to roll cables. That's kind of important. First day, first day <laughs> they taught us how to roll cables. Now, I remember that. God, man, I had a f- one friend who ended up going all the way through recording school. He passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But um, 
went all the way through recording school and got out and got an internship at a big studio in Memphis. And his first day, like they were making him sweep and, you know, sweep the floors, mop the floors, like stuff like that. He was like, man, screw this. You know, he's like, ah, I'm done. He went on to something else, you know, and that's just, it wasn't for him. And it took him a while to figure that out. But yeah, like, you know, you become an intern, like you're not really going to be, you know, turning knobs and, and things like that. You might be getting coffee for people and, 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 At first. and rolling cables. So last thing I want to talk about, where and how did you learn the technical side of mastering? Lots of research, reading, and trial and error. And, I, and man, I will be honest, there's still a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot of constantly morphing things that I have to, to do my best to keep up with, especially with digital audio, where there's not really, uh, you know, a lot of standards, right? Like there's a, a standard for CD audio, right? The Redbook standard. But other than that, you know, sample rates can be any number of things, right? Like loudness, uh, you know, measurements, things like that. Like streaming service services are constantly refining things or doing things differently. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of things that I still have to like, I have to be disciplined enough to keep up with them. And like I said, there are things that I don't know. I will be honest about that with everybody. I'm not going to pretend to know certain things. I'm not going to pretend to know how, uh, you know, the high pass filter on a linear phase EQ is technically different than the high pass filter on a minimum phase EQ. I can know that it sounds different and I can hear the sound and that's what matters to me. But like, there's a lot that I don't know. And so I learned a lot by a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of talking with friends who did the same thing. And now that I'm thinking about it, you know, probably learn the most from trial and error and probably learn the most from working with recording and mix engineers who can also learn a lot from mastering engineers. So yep. in other words, I'm mastering someone's mix, an engineer that I work with a lot, say like this is an example. I learn the patterns that need to happen with those mixes. I know what to expect and I know why to expect them. And their feedback and communication with me allows me to think about things that I would not have thought about in my approach. So again, connections with people, that's how I've learned uh, quite a lot. Networking, you know, and, and like I said, mastering engineers can learn a lot from mix engineers and vice versa. Mix engineers can learn a lot from mastering engineers about um, what they could do better. You know, I can usually pick up a mix, like get started in it and tell what someone's monitoring situation is like. I mean, I, I'm being completely honest there. Oh yeah, for sure. I can hear the problems. I can hear if their low end is out of control. And that's another thing, you know, like it's like, I think some of my biggest competitors aren't really other mastering engineers. I think they're mix engineers who master their own mixes. And you can get by with that, but like mm -hmm. if somebody mixes a record on NS10s and then masters that record in the same room on those NS10s, 
you might miss some things. And in S10s, you're going to miss a lot of things. But like, it's often good to have a different room, a different set of ears, you know. And mixing, you know, somebody might have enough pride that they think their mix is perfect and doesn't need anything. And they'd slap a limiter on it and eh, it might sound fine, but could sound a lot better with a different approach. So, yeah, like the technical stuff, I just learned from, I guess I learned it on my own. I learned from having to solve problems, you know. I remember for a while there, um, DDP software that I used had a little weird, you know, those software bugs that got, that like over time kind of sort themselves out, you know, like if a certain version of a software, something has like, yeah, and it's still the same DDP software that I use, but there was an, an older version of it that if like, you know how, when you cut on a zero crossing, like you, you won't get a pop, but if you cut like way off a zero crossing in audio, you'll get a click and a pop or mm-hmm. a pop, right? That's one problem I, I learned, you know, through like a long time ago. Like, oh, that's why it's popping. But there was a, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was, there was a thing where like if you had a crossfade, even if you had cut it on the zero crossing, it would add, if you added the files individually to the software, it would add a little hiccup there, right? So it'd be like, you'd have the crossfade, the, you know, like the little pause. I could not get rid of it had to, I mean, I I spent hours trying to figure it out and it was for a record that I had to submit. You know, I'm like, dude, why, this is going to be printed like this. I've got to figure it out. And I had to learn that the fix for that was to assemble all the files, all each individual file as one long waveform and then manually enter in the queue times for each, right? Into the software. Smooth crossfade, Delivered it, the CD got printed with no problems. But like those, a lot of the technical things, like the deep technical things like that come from having to solve problems on my own and figuring them out and going, you know, into the, sometimes into the seven, seven or eight or double digit pages of a, of a Google search or something, you know, like beyond the uh, search results omitted uh, thing. And I've always thought that a great producer Mixer, mastering engineer is a great problem solver. You got to be. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know some people don't understand that statement and think that I'm saying that that's instead of having a creative vision or any of those things, but I don't think it's instead of it's, but it is a part of it without being a great problem solver. You're just, you're going to, you're going to basically hit a wall with how far you can take things. Yeah. No matter how good your vision is. Right. You're going to run out of duct tape. Yeah, basically. It's a good way to put it. Well, Brad, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I want to thank you for coming on. Likewise. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm, I'm humbled by it. And um, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Hey, man, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy. And of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time. 
Happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.